right. Amen. That's a beautiful, beautiful little story there just told in 30 seconds. He is risen. Hey, it is so good to have you here today. We're so glad to have you in God's house today here for our Easter sunrise service. Actually, we're not doing the sunrise. I don't know why I said that, but you know, I, we used to do those years ago and uh, we'd have a couple hundred people gather out here at the church. We'd catch the sunrise. Then the next year it went to 150 people, then it went to 100 people, then it went to 50 people, then it went down to like three, me and my wife and our kids, you know, but uh, we just stopped doing them all together. It was hard to get people up at six in the morning to do a sunrise, but uh, we are certainly glad you're here today for the service, and if you're visiting here today, we are so glad to have you here at Triad Baptist Church today, and we want to honor the Lord and lift him up. I want you to take your Bibles today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be preaching a message today entitled, His Finest Hour, His Finest Hour. And as I do that, as you're finding that place, I want to have Rick, Rick Reynolds and his wife, Patty, stand, if you would, at this time. They're over here to my left in the back. Rick is leaving Tuesday to head back to Romania. He'll be there for at least probably a year, right? At least a year or so. And uh, they're going back as missionaries to Romania. Patty's going to be leaving in August. But uh, we're so glad to have them a part of our team. This is, our, this is their sending church here at Triad. And so we appreciate the labors and the work they're doing, working with refugees now out of Ukraine. They've been building homes and stuff for them to be able to stay in. There's all different kinds of ministries they have in Romania there. And uh, we're so grateful for that. So thank you guys. And we wish you a safe trip here Tuesday as well. Let's just give them a round. We so appreciate them. <clears throat> Now, if you found your place in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read verses 12 to 19. Let's stand together as I read. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You may be seated. Of all the religions in the world and all the founders and the dogmas that people believe today and the founders of those dogmas, they lived, they died, they were buried, and they're still buried. They're still buried. When you compare all founders of religion and dogmas that exist in the world today and you compare it to Jesus Christ, there's an ultimate difference. One has been risen from the dead. That is a dramatic difference between all other founders of religion and dogmas. As a matter of fact, Karl Marx is buried in the Highgate Cemetery in London, England to this day. Charles Darwin is buried in the Westminster Abbey in London. Muhammad is buried in Medina, in the Mosque of the Prophets in Saudi Arabia. Baha'u'llah, the founder of Baha'i religion, is buried in Haffa, Israel. 
Confucius is buried in Kufu, China. Lenin is buried in the Red Square in Moscow. Buddha has been buried in Sri Lanka at the Temple of the Tooth. All of them have died, been buried, and are still buried. Now that is unique to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, that he has risen from the dead. It is an amazing thing to think about that only Jesus Christ is the one who escaped death of all of these founders. He escaped death. So many people have tried to escape death. You may remember the name Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini died in 1926. Before he died, he escaped everything they put him in. They put him in a flooded gate where he had to remove himself from that before he drowned. They sealed him in a coffin. He was able to escape. They riveted him in a boiler. They locked him in a milk can. He escaped. They sealed him in a beer barrel. He got out. They put him in a maximum security prison, and somehow he got out of that prison. Before he died in 1926, he told his wife, I have escaped everything I've ever been in, and I'm going to find a way to escape death. So he told his wife, every anniversary of my death, October 1926, I want you to take my portrait in the hallway of our home, and I want you to put a candle under it and burn it all day long under my portrait. And I'm going to find a way to escape death and come back and get you. And I will come back on one of the days of my anniversary. So keep that candle lit. I will come sometime in the day and I will blow that candle out. The first year she did it, no candle went out. The second year, the third year, the fourth year. She did it 10 years straight. And finally, she herself died. Houdini never escaped death. He tried in every way that he could. He could escape a lot of things, but he couldn't escape death. The thing that is unique to our founder, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that death laid his cold hands on him, placed him in a rock-hewn tomb, and locked him behind the stone wall that was rolled in front of the tomb. But on the third day, he stirred up from death, and he walked out of that tomb. He's not behind us in a tomb today. He is before us on a throne. He is alive, and that is what we celebrate on this Easter day. It's a beautiful, beautiful understanding of the scriptures. And what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15, he imagines what it would be like if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead. And so he thinks the unthinkable, that Jesus Christ would not have risen, and what a tragedy that would be. And so I went through this passage this week, and this is what I wanted to share with you on my heart today as we come to the Word of God. What would be the six tragedies if there was no Easter? What would be the six tragedies if there was no Easter? And I know there's more in the passage, but these are the six that speak to me the most. All right, I want you to see those this morning, and I want the Lord to speak to your heart in this message today in regards to these things. Okay, watch this now. Verse 14, here's the first one. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Okay, number one. If Christ has not risen, the first tragedy is that our preaching is worthless. Now that strikes me because I have spent my entire life preaching. 
And if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, I am wasting my time up here, and I've wasted my whole life preaching the Word of God if He's not risen from the dead. And not only have I wasted my time, but think about all the time you've wasted to come to these messages, these sermons, and hear the Word of God preached. If Christ is not risen from the dead, you have spent a colossal waste of time coming to this church and believing in a Savior who is not risen from the dead. That's how important that is, just that thought alone, that it would be worthless to preach. It's so important, it's so central, because if he didn't raise from the dead, I've got no gospel. Understand that, okay? If he just died for your sins and was buried, I've got no gospel. It all hinges on the resurrection. Everything hinges on that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 3, Paul said here earlier, he said, I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. That Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. See, that's the gospel right there, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's central to understand that without the gospel... I'm wasting my time. You're wasting your time. Uh, thank God. That's why I think about this. Thank God for the preaching of the cross, but thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because by it, people can be saved. And I don't believe for one minute I'm wasting my time because I believe he's risen from the dead. And I believe that some of you are faithful here at this church because you believe the exact same thing. He has risen from the dead. All right, number two, let me go on. Not only is our preaching worthless, but number two, our faith is in vain. He says it right there in verse 14. He says it twice, actually, in the passage, but he says your preaching is in vain, but your faith also is in vain. Okay, again, what's that word vain mean? That means to be empty or futile or no profit or no purpose. In other words, you're trusting in someone that doesn't deserve your trust. You're putting your faith in Jesus, but if he's not risen from the dead, you are putting something in no one. You're putting a trust, a false hope. Why put faith in Jesus if Jesus is still in the grave? That's, that's what Paul is saying. It's not enough to believe he died for your sins and was buried. You have to believe that he was raised from the dead. You say, how do you know that? Romans 10, 9, and 10. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart, what? That God hath raised him from the dead. That's as much of the gospel as the fact that he died for your sin. That he raised him from the dead. For with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You've got to have those three things. The death the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Otherwise, your faith is foolish. It's vain. It's empty. It's worthless. But the Bible says in Romans, he has shown himself to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, imagine, imagine if he didn't raise from the dead. You'd be wasting your faith. So how do I know? that he's the son of God? How do I know his word is true? How do I know he saved me? How do I know his promise is true? Because Jesus Christ brought, was brought up from the dead by God the Father. And when he was brought up by God the Father, God was putting his stamp of approval on his son to say, 
His blood is the payment for your sin. And I authorize that. I put my stamp of approval on that. How do I do that? I bring him back from the dead. That's, that's a powerful thing. And so we don't serve a dead Savior. A dead Savior is nobody's Savior. A dead Savior is nobody's Savior. All right, that's number two. Your faith is in vain. Number three, and this one's worth thinking about, the disciples are dirty, rotten deceivers. They're dirty, rotten deceivers. Think of all the millions of people they've deceived over time if there is no resurrection from the dead. The Bible says in verse 15, Moreover, we are even found, he's talking about himself, Paul, and those that were the disciples, to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul is saying, the fact is, we're witnesses to the resurrection. That's powerful proof. And he goes through this passage and he proves all the hundreds of people that saw the risen Christ and their testimony. But he says, if that didn't happen, then we're false witnesses. Now, this word witness is a word that is used in the courtroom. And so what Paul is saying is, is as if I'm in a courtroom and I'm a false witness where I willingly, knowingly, deliberately perjure myself and say, Jesus Christ is risen when he's not. And I literally lie about that. I have become a false witness in the courtroom. I'm a liar. That's an amazing thing uh, because the disciples said this. All of them said this through their life. We testified Jesus is alive. We saw him alive. We talked to him. We ate with him. We fellowshiped with him. We touched him. We handled him after the resurrection. But if it's not true, then what Paul is saying is Jesus has never risen. Because these disciples all verify by their testimony over and over and over again that he's alive. So either it's true he's alive or they're all dirty, rotten deceivers. They have fooled hundreds and millions of people. You might ask the question, this is a good question, how do you know they weren't just saving face? The guy died. Maybe they propped him up or maybe they made somebody else be him. How, how do you know uh, they weren't just saving face because they look like they got egg on their face because now he's dead? I'll tell you how you know. Because they paid with the blood of their own life and died for Jesus Christ and risked everything for him. Now think about that. A man may live for a lie. All right, A man may live for a lie, but few, if any, would die for a lie. Josh McDowell said that, and I think that's an excellent thought. A man may live for a lie, but few, if any, will die for a lie. And they said he is alive, and I'm telling you, they sealed it with their blood. Because as Jesus Christ died, many of them died as martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they never denied it all the way to their death. They believed in a risen Savior. That's a beautiful thing. Um, I was talking to Frank Perdue. He is the director of Asia Ministries. And uh, he was telling me about the time that uh, in China now, it's an interesting thing that they're shutting down a lot of the Christian churches unless you'll put in the foyer of your church a picture of Jesus Christ, and Mao Zedong next to them, 
and say they're both saviors. So you can have church, and you can even preach the gospel, but in your foyer you have to have that these are your saviors, Mao Zedong and Jesus Christ. Now, if you won't put Mao Zedong in your foyer, then you have to go underground and risk death or even imprisonment. Well, there was a missionary that went into China, started several underground churches like this, and he was turning one over to his disciple, uh, a Chinese man that was going to take over this church. And so the Chinese man went to the missionary and said, for my first service, I'd like to try something. He said, okay, what do you want to do? He said, I want to I get four plain civilians, and I want to dress them up like policemen. And in my first service, I want them to invade our service underground, our underground church. And I want to find out who is the real church. So he hired four civilians to dress up like the people's, of, I think it's the people's police is what it's called there. The people's police. And he said, uh, I'm going to have them dress up like policemen. I want them to come into our service while we're singing. I want them to shut down the whole thing. I want them to have guns and everything. And so he planned this whole thing out for his church. And he had about 200 people on his inauguration preaching day. Now, this is not the day I would pick if it was my first day at the church. And so he, he has them singing a song. And all of a sudden, the four policemen come in and they put them at the four corners with their guns and they stop the service dead. And the policemen come to the front and they say, every one of you is under arrest for what you're doing right now. There's no representation of Mao Zedong. You are having a church service here against the order of communist China, the Republic of China. But we're going to give you an opportunity if you would like to leave. You can stand up right now and you can walk out and you will not be arrested. This is just about four or five years ago. And you know what happened? One by one by one, they started walking out of the church. And by the time it was done, 186 of the 200 walked out of that church because they were not going to be arrested for being in that church. The pastor then told the civilian police, the guys dressed like police, to take off your hats, put down your guns. He, he dismissed them, and they looked at the 14, and he said, now it's time to have church. He just ran off 186 of his people and found out who the church, true church was. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because hypocrites and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. A hypocrite will walk out when he's challenged in his faith or in his walk. But a martyr will give his life. Will give his life. And so one of the ways you know that the disciples are not deceivers is that they were willing to lay down their life's blood for their belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, Paul said, if it's not true, 
then we're all dirty, rotten liars. Thank God it is true. And these men put and laid down their life for Jesus Christ because they believed he was alive and they sealed it with their blood. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. Think about that. If, if, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Peter's a con artist, Paul's a fraud, and John is a no good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Think about that. And they have fooled today 2.5 million Protestants and Catholics to believe it all. See, you, you see the... If, if you have Jesus Christ in you, just common sense says this thing wouldn't last like that and influence that many billions of people. Common sense tells you that in your own gut as a child of God, that this is real. This isn't something we're just creating out of thin air that he wasn't risen from the dead. Number four, let's go on. If Jesus Christ is not written, the four, risen, the fourth tragedy is sin is sovereign. Sin is sovereign. Verse 17, look at that. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. That's, that's, if Christ is not risen, then God did not accept the payment for your sin. See, he died for you. He, he was buried for you. But if he didn't rise, God never accepted the payment for Jesus Christ's death and burial. But if Jesus Christ rose, what the writer is saying, what Paul is saying, is full payment has been made for your sin. And the resurrection is God's approval. God is saying, I, I allow the payment to be made by proving it to you that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I like what Donald Barnhouse says. No resurrection, no Savior. No Savior, no forgiveness. No forgiveness, no justification. No justification, no cleansing. No cleansing, your penalty of sin remains. Your penalty of sin remains. And worse than that, you're destined for death and hell if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead because you're still in your sin. But thank God, up from the grave, he arose. See, if he didn't rise from the grave, do you realize you're the most miserable people in the world who put your faith in Jesus Christ? You're miserable. Why? Because you are aware of your sin and you can do nothing about it. But most people go out and live and they don't want any awareness of their sin. They want to go out and live in their lust. They want to go out and live in their pleasures. They want to go out and do what they want. They want to make a career. They want to make money. That's all they want to do with their life. But they're not the most miserable people in life because they have numbed themselves to the fact that they're a sinner. But it would be a worse place to live, to live your life right now and to know you're a sinner, but to know it's not paid for? You've got to spend the rest of your life like that. And you have complete awareness that you're a sinner and you can't do nothing about it. You see, we're really the most miserable people if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. That's why it's so important you understand that we're still in our sins if he hasn't risen from the dead. And thank God he has risen and paid the price for our sin it's beautiful. Let me go on. Number five, death has conquered all. Death has conquered all. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The word fallen asleep means they died in Jesus Christ. But he said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then those that have died before us have perished. 
They perished. Okay? That means your mom, if she died in the Lord, she's perished. She's gone. You'll never see her again. Your dad, if he's died, you'll never see him again. Your children, anybody died prematurely in your family, you'll never see him again. They've perished. They have perished. They're dead and gone. You'll never see them. They're in the grave right now. They're rotting and decaying. That's it. It's over. It's ended. Death has won. Death has won. Now, now just think that through logically. You're telling me that the Creator made this universe, and when He made this universe, all He wants to do is run everything into the grave. That's all he wants to do. He just wants everybody to die, to just get sicker and sicker and sicker until we die, and then we just die in a veil of tears. You mean that's, that's why he created everything. See, if he's not risen from the dead, then that's it. That's the whole explanation of life, is that there is nothing, and we just perish, and we never see our loved ones again. It's a terrifying thought. Now, I can't believe that, and I don't accept that on the basis of the authority of God's word and, and, and I'll tell you what, that encourages me because I went back and looked this week. I've, since 2010, I started keeping record in 2010. I should have done it earlier, but I didn't. But since 2010, I've done over 250 funerals. 250, that's a lot of funerals, folks. All right? And one day, maybe I'll get to do yours. Okay? But that's not a good thought, is it? <laughs> but think about that. Think about that, 250 funerals. Can you imagine if I walked into the funeral and I looked at some of your faces, which some of your faces I have looked at, because you have lost loved ones, and you've lost a husband, you've lost a wife. Can you imagine looking into your face and not able to give you any hope of seeing them again? That's why I don't mind doing funerals. There's sad times, but there's something about going in there and knowing what a joy it is to do a funeral of someone who knows Jesus Christ. It is a joy. It is a joy in my heart. The hardest things to do are funerals for people. I don't know where they are. And I don't even know what to say sometimes. And I have to look at people and say, if he could speak right now, he'd tell you to get right with Christ. That's the most I can do. Because I know that's what he would say if he could come back from the dead. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's in heaven or hell. But what a joy it is to be able to look in some of your faces and tell you about your husband or your wife or your mom or your child. And maybe he'll say, you'll see that one again. You have hope in Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to go to the catacombs in Rome, but it's quite an experience. The, Ro uh, the Romans in their day would not bury anybody in the city limits, and everybody who died as a Roman citizen would be burned. That's how they did their funerals then. Well, the Christians didn't want to burn the bodies of those that had died in the Lord. And so there was an old rock quarry outside of Rome called the catacomb. That's what it means, from the quarry. It was a rock quarry, and it would go down underground into these caverns and there's miles and miles of these catacombs and places that the Christians took their dead to bury and some of the pagans who didn't want to um, have their people burned they would put them down in there as well and so they could have these burials down in there and they could have, they actually did church services down there too to escape persecution in certain years of Rome's history 
And I went down in these catacombs. I wrote down a few of the things that, that are carved by their loved ones on over their site. They're put into niches, into these little holes. They dig out these little holes into the wall, and then they bake over their kind of their, their grave marker there, and then they would carve into the grave marker. Here's what some unsaved pagans wrote on theirs down in the catacombs. Now listen to this. Listen to how hollow this sounds. By the way, what are you going to write on your epitaph? What are you going to have somebody put on it? You ever thought about that? I know what I'm going to have written, but what are you going to have written? Here's what one person wrote of an unsaved pagan at that time. Once I was, now I am not. That's it. Here's another wrote. Live for the present hours since we are sure of nothing else. Another one wrote this. I will lift up my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. This just sounds so empty, doesn't it? Another one said, Traveler, curse me if you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Just such a cold... When you go down there, man, it's already cold, okay? When you go down there, this cold chill comes over you when you read these on their epitaphs. But the cool thing is you go to these places where these Christians have been buried. And here's some things that were written on theirs. I couldn't write them all. I just wrote some short ones here. One said this, Lawrence, to my sweetest son, carried away by the angels of God in Jesus Christ. Another one said this, we went away in the peace of God. Another one said this, victorious in the peace and in Christ. Another one said, here lies Marcy, put to rest in Christ in the dream of peace. What a difference it makes if Christ is risen from the dead. What a difference. Those others just made me have chills on my back and just in my, my hair would stand up. I'd think, oh, how empty that is. But over here I'd read these Christians and I'd say, what peace they died with. What a joy it was. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. And just that simple thought, what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes. I've read hundreds of epitaphs. I like to write them down. Sometimes if I'm in a graveyard or something, I'll, I'll, uh, it's crazy. I know I should. Well, I'm not going to tell you that, okay? But anyways, let me tell you. I've read a lot, of, I've read a lot of, of, of Christians' epitaphs. And I like this one the best. This is John Newton's epitaph. He was a slave trader, a wicked man, lived a very wicked life. And uh, here's what, when he got saved and came to Jesus Christ, and he wrote uh, Amazing Grace. So you know that song, okay? So this guy is pretty famous. But when he got saved, here's what he wrote. They wrote on his epitaph. Once an infidel and slave trader, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith in Christ, he hath long labored to destroy. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Because what a difference it makes if Christ is raised. All right, let me go on. Number six. Number six. Your future is futile. Your future is futile. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If all this is... If everything we live for, if this is all the good moments we're ever going to see, 
and it only gets worse and there's no future and Christ isn't from the dead, we have a futile future. Now, that's an, that's an amazing thing. Um, one of my favorite authors is Ernest Hemingway. I've read just about every book he read or he wrote, and I love to read them. Sometimes when I read Ernest Hemingway, I'll still go back, read The Old Man in the Sea, or I'll go back and read uh, the, the Snows of Kilimanjaro. That's a cool one because he would go to sleep at night and he would hear the hyenas out in the, in the jungle just shouting out, they're coming to get you. And the way he... I didn't, I didn't, write, I didn't say it like he says it, but he, I, could, I could read his stuff and I feel like the hyenas are right behind me. And he just had a way of doing that. He was an incredible writer. But, but the sad part of his life Here's what he said about life, okay? He said this, It is as though we are a colony of ants living on a burning log. I remember reading that about him. We're a colony of ants living on a burning log. You know how he died? He died a drunk. He died a drunk. That, that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart to think about such an incredible writer and never found God in his life. Now, I just took that and I was thinking about that. I'm going to say this and I want you to hear it carefully, okay? I don't believe in drinking alcohol, okay? I never drank, I don't intend to, and you shouldn't either. Well, let me say this. If I didn't know Jesus and Jesus isn't alive today, I'd get drunk, I'd stay drunk, and I'd die drunk. I'm certainly not going to live the way I'm living right now. I would do what Ernie Hemingway did. I'd just die a drunk. All right? And I'd encourage you to do that too. For the record, okay, for the record, I condone drinking if Jesus is still in the grave. Okay? I want to make that clear, okay? Pat, don't go out and say, oh, he said, get some uh, rock and rye right now and let's go at it. No, he never said that, okay? If Jesus is still in the grave. But let me tell you something. Today, we know he's alive and I'm not recommending you to be a drunk. I'm recommending you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the most important thing you could do from this message is to realize that without Jesus Christ and you putting your faith in a risen Savior and His payment for your sin, you're futile. your future is futile. You, you have no hope of tomorrow. You have no hope of your future. Can you imagine never seeing your loved ones again? Can you imagine the cold feeling of being in the catacombs and something written about you once I was, and I am no more. Be horrible, but, but you have an opportunity to know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, but He is risen. That's why I'll keep preaching. That's why faith is still the channel of grace. That's why the disciples are dependable witnesses. That's why sin and the sting of death has been taken out of it. That's why death is defeated, and that's why your future is fabulous. Okay? Because Christ is risen from the dead. Now I want to apply this and I'm going to close, okay? Let me just make an application here for you this morning. I was reading in John 12, 23, and all that chapter in John 12, and it struck me how I want to apply this to your life. Jesus said in verse 23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He said in verse 22, Verily I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it shall bring forth much fruit. Now he's talking about his death. And he's talking about his burial and he's talking about his resurrection. 
Now, the mystery and the purpose of why Jesus came was to die. I know you know that. It wasn't to walk on water. It wasn't to heal the blind. It wasn't to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though he did all that. But in a few years, Lazarus is going to die again. Jesus was born to die. Accept a grain of wheat, fall to the ground, and die. You can buy seeds and put them on the shelf, and as long as they're on the shelf in your home, they do you no good. Because that's not the purpose of a seed. But if you take that seed and you bury it in the ground, you fulfill the purpose of the seed. That's the reason for seeds, to put them in the ground so they can die and bring forth much fruit. Jesus said, I didn't come to be put on a shelf. I came to be buried in the ground and die. That was my whole purpose. That's why I came, to be buried in the ground and to die. And when I'm buried, when I'm buried, I will get all of the glory out of my life and my story. I'll get all the glory out of it just from that one event. I'll get all the glory out of it for my story. On the shelf, I remain alone. In the ground and die, I will multiply myself and I will reproduce myself. Some of you are the multiplication and the reproduction of what Jesus did back when he died on the cross. Now, he says in verse 25, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life and the world shall keep it unto eternal life. He takes the resurrection, or he takes the death, burial, and the resurrection, and now he puts it into your life. So what does that mean? To love your life, you lose it. To hate your life, you'll find it, and you'll have life eternal. Okay, here's what it means, okay? You can't be afraid. Well, let me just say it this way. You can't be a Christian and be afraid to die. You can't be a Christian and be afraid to die. You've got to understand that the most life-giving experiences as a Christian will come through death-giving experiences. The more you go through death experiences, the more experience you have of life experiences. If nothing in you ever dies, nothing in you will ever live. I want to I drive this home to your heart because it's so important to get. When you start praying for the abundant life in Jesus Christ, you know what you're really praying for? You're praying for abundant death. The more you die in one area, the more you live in another area. This is how it works. This is how it worked on the cross. Okay? That's why a Christian feels strange in life. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. All at the same time. And all the time God's trying to make something live, He's also trying to make something die. At the same time. It's an, it's an incredible thing to get a hold of. The more something dies, the more something is going to live. Okay? You pray to God to give you the abundant life, yet you feel like everything inside of you is dying. You've got to understand this. God's answering your prayer. God's answering your prayer. Something inside you has got to die. 
or you'll never have something inside of you live. You can take it at any level, but, but bring it to the cross, okay? Understand this. Your pride's got to die. Your will's got to die. Your attitude's got to die. Everything that's hindering you from the glory of God has got to die. Your dependency on people's got to die. Your need for acceptance has got to die. Your need for recognition has got to die. Everything's got to die. And the more it dies, the more God is glorified in your life. This is incredible just to tie it to your life. And get this. The closer you get to your hour of being glorified, the more you're going to be crucified. You can't be glorified if you're not going to be crucified. Stay with me, okay? I, I know it doesn't feel good when you're going through it, but understand you're going through it, not to it. Okay? You're going through it, not to it. You're going through a crucifixion, not to a crucifixion. That's how it was with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay on the cross. He went through it, not to it. Let that sink in your mind. Just let that sink in. He came to die, and when anybody tried to stop him from dying, it didn't matter if it was his closest friend, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. What he was saying by that is, is ultimately, don't stop from me from getting in trouble. I came to get in trouble. I came to get in trouble. This is an incredible thing just to grasp in your life. I know that doesn't sound like most Christians today. Most Christians don't want to be in trouble or get in trouble for God. They'll just say something like, well, you just got to believe in God and just trust God, just stand on the word, just believe the word, and you won't go through persecution, you won't go through this. Hey, that's not what he's saying. He's never said that. In other words, the truth of the matter is, Jesus went through a cross, and he said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross, not your Mercedes, not your Lexus. You got to take up your cross. You got to take up a cross. That's what we got to do. And that's the experiences we're going to have. They're going to be very similar to a crucifixion. And that's, that's just something to get a hold of. And, and that's why Jesus said in John 12, he said, now is the prince cast out. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's talking about Satan. He's saying the prince is cast out. He said, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready to whip up on the devil. I'm getting ready to rumble with the devil. You know why? Because the cross is a fight. If you miss everything else in this sermon, catch this. The cross is a fight. He trampled the powers of the enemies of the cross. Spiritual warfare at its best is the sacrifice of the flesh. Spiritual warfare, at its best, is the sacrifice of the flesh. That's why his flesh is torn. That's why his flesh is ripped off of him. That's why he goes through incredible pain and suffering with his flesh to teach you that spiritual warfare, at its best, is a sacrifice of the flesh. So what does that mean? He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. That's an incredible statement because sometimes people miss the weight of that. What he's saying is, I will get done more on the cross than anything else I've done in my whole life. I will get done more on the cross, 
All men will be drawn to me. I'll heal the sick. I'll see the blind. I'll raise Lazarus. But I won't draw all men to me with that. What will draw all men is if I'm put on a cross, the cross is going to be my finest hour. My finest hour. I will look like I'm completely losing. I will look like I'm beaten to death. They will mock me. They will spit on me. And it will look like I'm defeated, demented, and as if I have failed in everything I set out to do. That's how I'll look. But the truth of the matter is, I will get more done at that moment than I did in all my other victories. Get this, because his worst hour was his best hour. His worst hour was his best hour. That's, that's hard to fathom, but that's how it works. That's how the Christian life works. You, you won't get that completely, but I wish you'd think about that because the truth of the matter is your worst hours have the potential to be your best hours. Just, just fathom that for a minute. He said, if I be lifted up, and my flesh is mutilated and torn and all my blood is poured out. What he's saying is if I be lifted up, that event is going to draw all men to me. That's beautiful. And I'm telling you, that's how it's going to be for you. That's how it's going to be for you. Spiritual warfare at its best is a sacrifice of the flesh. That's what he wants you to know about the crucifixion and the resurrection for you. That your worst hour could be your best hour. Let's pray. Just with every head bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around, the praise team's going to come. We're going to do a closing song and celebrate really this moment of time. But you have come here, you have heard the word of God preached, and you would say this morning, you know, Pastor Rob, I need to be saved. I need to get this thing settled. I do, I do not need to face any of those things in my life where my future is futile, or my sin is still on my account. But Pastor Rob, this morning, I, I want to make a decision for Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand? Just hold it up for a minute and lift up your hand right now and you say, that's me. Is there one? I see one over there. Is there another? Just lift up your hand and hold it up just for a minute so I can see. Lift it up. Is there another hand? I just want to take a moment. Make sure this is settled in your heart. Okay, I see that hand down here at the front. Is there another with heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want to, I want to know. I just saw two hands, but there's another one. I just want to take a moment to lead you in this prayer. Just pray this prayer right at your seat. Dear God, I know my sin deserves judgment. I know you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Right now, I place my faith and trust in you 
as my Lord and Savior. Save me. And God, help me to be the person you want me to be. I believe on the authority of God's word. If you prayed that prayer, he saved you. And I want you to let me know. Let me know. You can reach out to us through that QR code at the front of the seat there or one of those cards. Just let us know because I'd like to pray for you. I've had several come to faith in the last few days and they've contacted me and I want to help you learn how to grow in Christ. But I believe on the authority of God's word. You're saved. Now, I don't know what God's going to do with each of you. I'm speaking to the broad audience now. But I know this. The sacrifice of your flesh is going to be your finest hour. Greatest hour. I don't know if I even understand all that. I've got a glimmer of it, a taste of it. But that's where Jesus Christ is leading you. Some things got to die. Some things need to live. So I ask that over your lives. Father, I pray for this hour. I pray for this time. I thank you for your word. That we have a hope of eternal life because there's a resurrection. We're putting all our trust in that. All our hope, all our faith. We have none but you. And we praise you now for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to lead us in a closing song here and we'll worship together and you'll be dismissed.